Would you turn to the book of Exodus, please? The book of Exodus. The theme of the book of Exodus is redemption. And the definition of redemption is a purchase with a view to freedom so that the book of Exodus is the story of the purchase of man for his freedom. There is something that we've tried to uh, remember to help us to um, really get something out of the Old Testament, and that is that you get the principles of the Christian life in the New Testament, and you get the pictures of those principles in the Old Testament. I'm absolutely certain of this, that if a person grasps that concept, that what he has in principle in the New Testament, he sees pictured in the Old Testament, the Old Testament comes alive and will never come alive until he grasps that concept. So as you read back to the Old Testament, from the New Testament period, our New Testament perspective, you see these great principles of redemption illustrated in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Had you been living in the Old Testament era in Moses' day, what you would have is a foreshadowing or a typology of that which is yet to come, and you would see Jesus typed in the Old Testament and the principles of New Testament Christianity played out in Old Testament symbols and, and figures and buildings and, 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 uh, and all those kinds of things. So you get the principle in the New Testament pictured in an Old Testament illustration. We've come to the seventh chapter of the book of Exodus to a new division in this book. Now the gauntlet has been thrown and what we see in the next section, chapter 7 through 14, is this war going on between the Egyptians and Almighty God. And we get this marvelous tableau pictured for us as far as the human eye can see of the conflict between good and evil. So that what you see in this section is not just a struggle going on between the Egyptians and God, but what you see as, as far as great is the range to human vision is this tableau of this undercurrent of struggle between good and evil with which we all have to do. Now, let me say this right quickly, but don't have time to say anything else, that is, that you have, the, the, the Bible does not seek to establish that there is only one God. That's going to shock some of you. The Bible does not seek to establish there is only one God. There are many gods in the Bible. The Bible seeks to establish there is only one true God. And He is Jehovah, He is Yahweh, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, in establishing which is the true God, because the Babylonians have their gods, the Egyptians have manifold deities, in order to establish who is the true God, this struggle goes on to see who wins 
and who is the greater, and who is the almighty, who is the champion, so to speak. And that's what the book of Exodus in this section sets out to establish. Now before we get into it, I want to just point you to one verse of Scripture. So you're going to look all the way back to the New Testament, to the end of it, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Now chapter 4, verse 4, 1 John, it's the epistle of John, not the gospel. It's over by the book of Revelation. This is what verse 4 reads, how it reads. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. And what he's talking about, what the them is, is this spirit of antichrist that's in the world. And you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, if there ever was a picture of that truth, that principle, it's in the book of Exodus, that this God who is within us, who has come to indwell us and live within us, is greater than all the gods of man. And how we know that to be true is what played out in the, in the nation of Egypt as God and, and the Egyptians as good and evil came into conflict. That's where we are in this great book. Now, we, we talked a little bit late, last Sunday night about the fact that God sent Moses down to Egypt, this timid man, this reticent man, this discouraged, cowardly man, and all of a sudden this man is changed, and he's changed by the fact that God delegates to him this divine authority. He said, I'm going to make you as gods. And what that means is that he gave him divine authority and he went down to Egypt as God himself commanding and punishing the Egyptians. Totally different man now. A man who has received delegated authority. By the way, we spent about 20 minutes the other night trying to establish the fact that that same authority is ours, not by delegation, but by the fact that Jesus Christ, who has all authority, indwells us and lives within us. Then we came to, to, to kind of introduce the matter of the plagues. How many of you, just show of hands, how many of you have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments? Would you lift your hand? Many of you have. I'm sorry you've seen that movie. <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille, I mean, fouled it up for us big time. What I want to do tonight is to try to help us see that what was played out there in Egypt was not just God bringing his hand down on the Egyptian Pharaoh so he'd let his people go. There's much more involved in that. Would you try to understand that, please? I want to say something about the plagues, their arrangement. Now the arrangement of the plagues in, this, in these chapters, beginning at chapter 7, plainly manifests a divine order and design. Now if you take out plague number 10 and set it to the side, it's a different, it's a different thing because of its relation to Israel and to Egypt. You have a division, you have... Nine plagues divided into 
divisions of three. So that you have three divisions of plagues, three plagues to a division. Are you following? Before plagues one and two, there is a warning. Now you'll have to, you'll have to take my word for this. I'm not going to read this whole narrative, just parts of it. But please do this throughout the week. You read beginning at chapter 7. In verse 14, the first two plagues have warnings before them. The third plague does not have a warning. Watch this. Before plagues four and five, there's a warning. Before plague six, there is no warning. Before plagues seven and eight, there is a warning. Before plague nine, there is no warning. And that just... There is design in that and order in that. It doesn't happen just by accident. I think there are two things that are involved in that arrangement and order. The first is that God will not always strive with man. God will not always strive with man. Now, I've sung the song, you know, Marvelous, Infinite, Matchless Grace. You've sung that song. That's a beautiful song, but it's not theologically correct. There is no such thing as infinite grace. Now, that makes good poetry, but it, does, it doesn't make good theology. There is no such thing as infinite grace. There is a point in time, now listen to me, there is a point in time when the grace of God ends and the wrath and judgment of God begins. For God will not always strive with man. The second thing this order and design suggests is this, that warning often repeated but unheeded will be followed by judgment sudden and terrible. Now, I'm not one who is given to preach hellfire and damnation, and, and I'm not one who often preaches on the judgment of God or the wrath of God, but I must say tonight, in light of what is found in the book of Exodus, is that the warning from God is, that is unheeded is followed by judgment that is sudden and swift. And that's what you find in this order. So there's a second thing I need to say about the arrangement of the plagues. The progressive nature of the plagues is easily perceived. There is a marked graduation of a steady advance in severity. That's just like God. He doesn't bring to us, you know, He doesn't bring His hand down on us in full force. There is this gradual progression of severity of God's hand of judgment upon human life. God is, does not delight in the suffering of man, and He doesn't delight in the judgment of man. And so there is this steady progression of the judgment of God. The first three plagues have to do with an interruption of the Egyptians' comfort. Their water was turned to blood, so they had no drink, says the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 14. Then there was this invasion of frogs and this 
this coming alive of the earth with lice. And primarily what was happening here was that these Egyptians were, were you know, being harassed at the point of convenience. The second group of plagues begins with, with the fourth plague, and the Lord's hand was laid on their possessions. Now, if you want to hurt a person, I guess you, you hit him in his pocketbook or his bank account. I mean, he can stand a few lice, you know, as long as he's got a full checkbook. But God's hand came down on their possessions. The first were these flies that corrupted the land, then the destruction of their cattle, and then these people were covered with boils. God's hand of judgment upon them in increasing severity so that the last division of plagues brought desolation and death. And what God is saying is this, is that a man who resists my will the judgment, my judgment upon that man increases in severity until the ultimate destruction. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Mark. I want to show you something that just by way of illustration. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. I got my eye on my watch. We'll, we'll be right in there. You saw somebody beating his watch, thought he had stopped. <laughs> and he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night, gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows, how he himself does not know. He doesn't understand that process. The soil produces crops by itself. First, here it is, first the blade sticking up through the earth, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now Jesus often used parables that people didn't understand except those who were kind of in on the know. And he taught with these parables, this le these lessons that escaped the knowledge of so many. And underneath this parable is this message that first there is the blade, then there is the head, then there is the, the grain, the full head, the full uh, stalk of grain, and when that happens, the sickle comes, the harvest comes. Now what happened in Egypt was, there was this series of plagues unheeded, then a second series of plagues unheeded, and the third series unheeded, and then the judgment of God fell upon that nation and upon its Pharaoh. A question I think that some of us are confronted with tonight is where are we as individuals and where is this nation of ours as a nation in light of that? Well, I want to do the message of the plagues as best I can, then we're out of here. 
The first plague, now remember this. Now we're kind of getting a little heavy stuff here. Remember this, that what is happening here is much more than just God trying to get Pharaoh beat down so he'll let folks out of town, you know. God is proving himself as the great God of all gods. That's what's happening. I look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, the turning of water to blood. The turning of water to blood. That's a symbol of death. Now, if you walked into a room somewhere and you saw blood everywhere, you would assume somebody is either hurt pretty bad or dead. When water was turned to blood, it was the symbol of death. And it contrasts, watch this, with the first miracle that Jesus performed when he turned water to wine, which was the symbol of joy and life. Now here's the story here. Here's the message. When God put his hand on Egypt, in judgment he brought death. When he put his son on the earth, he brought life abundant. So that when a man resists the will of God, the inevitable result is death. When he accepts the will of God, the inevitable result is life and joy. He he turned water to blood. Second plague begins in verse seven of chap, verse one of chapter eight, once through verse seven. It happened seven days later, and it gave opportunity, full opportunity to repent. And it was executed against the idolatry of the Egyptians. Now watch this. The Nile River was a sacred thing to the Egyptians. It was as sacred to Egypt as the Ganges is to the Indian. And he turns that water of the Nile, he turns this Nile that was a god to the Egyptians to death. And then he brings this plague of frogs. Now that's bad enough. You open the kitchen cabinet to get a saucer, and there's a big old frog, you know, (laughs) sitting there. Nothing any more grotesque and obnoxious. But there's much more than that. To the Egyptians, the frogs themselves were sacred. I was reading recently from the book of Revelation this statement, and the Revelation said, And I saw evil spirits as frogs coming out of the mouth of the beast. And so I was curious as to how that, what that meant, and I looked it up and found that in biblical, in biblical terminology, in biblical symbology, the frogs symbolized evil and they stood for uncleanness. They were worshipped as deity, but in biblical symbol they were they represented evil and uncleanness. Now I want you to read with me verse 7 of chapter 8. And the magicians did the same with the secret arts, making frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now, 
let me, I need to say parenthetically something I failed to mention, that after the first uh, miracle or plague, the magicians performed the same thing. Not long ago, I was preaching a revival out in Lubbock, Texas, and there was this uh, young man in this church there. He, was a, um, he played basketball for uh, uh, Washington State University. He played pro basketball. And he was he's from Lubbock and played at Texas Tech, so he, he was active in the church there. And he, he told me about going down to Mexico. Some of you may have heard these stories about going down to Mexico and, and getting involved in these demonic things that are going on down there. And he told about, he literally watched, this is so way out and weird that I'm almost ashamed to <laughs> refer to it, but... He told about going and watching this, this person perform surgery without anesthetic, literally reached inside the person's body and performed this surgery, and the person never even felt it. I have some real problems believing that actually happened like that at all. But I've done some, thing, I've done some reading on that and have, have come up with some, some um, opinions about those kinds of things that these supernatural things that are performed in the occult and in this realm of the mystical are performed under the power, the supernatural power of the demonic world. Now these magicians were doing the same thing that Moses was doing as having delegated authority from God. How were they doing it? Well, they were doing it under the power of the evil world, the evil one. They turned water to blood, and they made these frogs come up. The problem was that they couldn't exterminate them when they got tired of them. Like that old boy told about uh, down in East Texas. He, was, uh, he said he had these people coming on his property down there. He was from... He, lived, he didn't live there, he just had some land there. He said he had these people coming on his property all the time and tramping down his crops and messing around hunting on his land. He said, I couldn't keep them off, so he said, I got me a bramer, he called it. It's, it's Brahma, isn't he? So I got me a bramer bull, put him out there. Best watchdog I ever had, he said. He's got me a bramer bull. He kind of paused a little bit. He said the only problem was... The Bramer didn't know, you know, who was the good folks, who was the bad ones. They chased me out all the time. The problem with these people, with these demonic powers, is that they couldn't, they couldn't do anything about the problem. I mean, the frogs kept coming. I mean, hear, hear me now, if you don't hear anything else. There is a power in this world that's supernatural, and you folks who are messing around with horoscopes and messing around with these kinds of things, you better leave that stuff alone. That scares me to death. I could tell you tonight about some things that are going on in Durant RFD that scare me, friend. And people who are involved in these supernatural groups that are that are seeing these weird and mystical and mysterious things occur in the, in, in, uh, under the power and the influence of the evil one. You better not mess with that kind of stuff. 
But even though there is a power in the world that's supernatural, that power has limitations and it's, that power is, is subservient and inferior to the power of God. Let me tell you where this power happens, where it comes from. It only, the devil has only as much power as God permits him to have and you give him freedom to have. Well, that's another sermon, but certainly happens here. Because at the end of this third plague, which was a plague of, of, of lice, the magicians couldn't perform that one. Interesting, isn't it? I want you to look with me in verse 18 of chapter 8. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Are you listening here? The scripture says that the devils believe and tremble. I need to say this. I want everybody to hear it. The devils in hell believe more in the power of God than you do. The scripture says that the devils believe and shudder when you hear and think and understand the power that Almighty God possesses. Does that send a shudder up your spine? No. And these magicians who operated under the power of the demonic world recognized that this was the finger of God, and all of a sudden, these magicians disappear off the scene. They're no longer found after plague number three. Well, let me say this quickly about plague number three, and we'll do one more and let you out in time. I think I mentioned this last week that these Egyptians... Priest, when they went in to perform their function, they had to be absolutely pure. And they went through these, this process of purification and they shaved their heads so that there would be no kind of, of uh, disease or any kind of bug, we'd call them on them. And they wore these real thin linen, white linen garments to perform their priestly function. And they had all these lice on them. Now they didn't have any hair, but they had lice all over their bodies and all in their clothes. And what is happening is, is that God is interrupting the function of the priest of that pagan religion. So they couldn't even worship their God. All right, plague number four begins this new series and it's listed, it's noted, uh, recorded in chapter 8, verses 20 through, 23, uh, through 32. Now God makes a, a division. He makes a, uh, um, a change here. He no longer um, brings, no longer do the Israelis suffer these plagues like they did the first one. The first plagues, first division, the first three, the, the Israelites suffered the plagues just like the Egyptians. 
But now he moves into this as the severity increases and he lays his hand upon their possessions. He makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that they no longer suffer the result of the plagues. Now he lays his hand on their possessions by sending this plague of flies. Psalm 78, 45 records this and says that he sent a swarm of flies that devoured them. They evidently bit them and ate them, chewed on them. So to speak. Can I give you a fifth plague? I said I would out of here on four, but it didn't take me long on that one. Plague five is Exodus chapter nine, verse one through seven. All the cattle died. In chapter nine, verse eight through twelve, boils came on these people. And in chapter 9, verses 18 through 35, this heavy hail came down with electrical storm with, so, with such intensity that it smote everything in Egypt and everything in the fields, both man and beast, and it stripped every tree. Now, I want to give an application to this because I don't want us to go out here just learning about the plagues and we'll finish this next week, but I want to give two applications. Number one, please jot this down. What is happening with the plagues shows plainly the character of Him with whom we all have to do. Now, what is the character of God with whom we have to answer, with whom we have to deal, to whom we have to answer? Number one, He is not indifferent to human sin. He is not indifferent to human sin. Now sometimes I begin to wonder, you know, you know, in the delay of God's judgment, is it possible to sin and God, you know, just turn His back and, and, and wink at it and ignore it? And sometimes because God does not deal immediately with sin, we assume that God is indifferent toward that sin. Hear me well. God is not indifferent toward your sin. God is not indifferent toward the sin that's in your life. He is long-suffering with the sinner. He is long-suffering with the sinner... But He is righteous judge of the rebellious. He does deal with sin. Second application shows plainly the responsibility of us with whom He has to do. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, flee to the divinely appointed refuge because no one wants to suffer the judgment of God. An old man one day got up in a pulpit and he read his sermon word for word. And the problem with him was he was almost blind. He wore real thick glasses, so he had to read with his paper right up next to his nose. 
He got up and he read a sermon, lasted an hour and 30 minutes, and he read it word for word in monotone. Now you think this is bad. <laughs> the guy's name was Jonathan Edwards, and he read a sermon that was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I've read the sermon in its entirety, and I can tell you that a lot of that theology that, was in, is, that, that is in that sermon, or was in that sermon, has stretches the point just a little bit. But I'm also here to tell you that from that sermon emerged, exploded the Great Awakening, and a revival that spread across this land that changed the course of human history in America. And the gist of the sermon was that God is not indifferent to our sin, and He will not allow it to go on and on without His judgment. That's enough to cause the people, and was enough, that the people held on to the pews, literally held on to the pews, fearful that they might fall into this abyss he so graphically described. The application of this message is that if a man is living in rebellion against God, he doesn't have to suffer judgment. He can flee to the appointed refuge which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to get the message of an Old Testament story to remind us that your purpose is not to bring judgment, but to bring redemption. And that every trace of your hand upon our life that brings heartache pain is just to point us to the way. I pray for those tonight who have never trusted Christ, who need to follow Him in salvation and faith. And for, the, for those of us who are living outside Your will, we might rededicate ourselves to Jesus Christ and to the work of God. For I pray in His name. Now, there are three invitations. I invite you to come tonight and give your heart to Christ. If you've never been saved, Jesus awaits to save you. He waits to give you pardon from sin, to take you to heaven. Oh, the forgiveness of our Lord and His mercy. Maybe you need to come tonight to join the church or to rededicate yourself to Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.